All right. Evening, everybody. Nice to see you. Thank you all for your time for coming to this. Um, so it'll be uh, approximately between eight and ten weeks long, the course. And uh, there's a couple of weeks' time I won't be able to make it. It's the last week, isn't it, of February that I'm away in America again. Um, so other than that, one week should be, should be normal all the way through. Um, yeah, and they're all being recorded as well to go on my YouTube channel. So if you ever want to watch them again... And also, in a few weeks' time, I'll give you a book with all the course material in as well so that you can study it at your own perusal. And uh, that should pretty much be 99% of everything that I've got here. I tend to add a lot more in as well, uh, but the, the, the crux of what I'm going to say is all here. So um, it was my wife's idea to, to um, maybe redo this course in light of two days' events that are going on in the world. Uh, with Israel. I have a friend of mine, he's a Messianic Jew, and his name's David Hofbrand. You may or may not have heard of him. And I was having lunch with him about a month ago uh, in Brighton. And he said to me, you know, he said, the church generally are okay, well, let's say quite cold to the Israel thing, but generally he gets well received and gets a good response in in a lot of churches. He said, but since uh, the October the 7th broke out, he said the silence from the church, he said, has been utterly shocking. Um, And he said, you know, he's been to lots of places and it, it took a lot of willpower for him not to get angry at the Christians, that they're just lack of response, either not wanting to get involved because they don't want to be offensive or, you know, that they're just struck, they just don't get the whole Israel thing and they're struggling with it and, and so on and so forth. And, and so I, I, I thought, you know, maybe as Tracy was saying, it's probably good to re, redo this course. I did it uh, 2017 was the last time I did it. And I, I wrote, put it, all the course notes into a book, which is called The Biblical Importance of Israel. And uh, that's on various university reading lists. And it, as a book, it's never really sold that well. But since October the 7th, um, the, my book sales for that particular book are quite high, you know, like every month I'm getting, you know, some good royalties that, which surprised me, it's like, wow so it is a book which, it, because people are like asking the question, what is the importance of Israel, what is the deal with the whole Israel thing why is it such a hot potato now the biblical importance of Israel, it's just on Amazon um, so I've flowed through many streams in Christendom over the last 30 years, I started off life as an Anglican Praise God. And, uh, and then I've hang, hung around in charismatic circles. I hang, hung around in Pentecostal circles. Um, and, and every denomination has their points of emphasis. Anglicans are really good at social justice, social care, all that kind of stuff. Um, I find the charismatic side of things, they tend to be uh, very good at like the IT, the technology, and they're passionate about Jesus and worship, um, and so on and so forth. I like the Pentecostals, they love the, 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 the power of gifts of, of God and that old-timey kind of religion. And as you're in each part of the church, they have different emphasis on different things. And when it comes to the issue of Israel, they tend to have lots of different emphasis from, from different things. And so what I kind of learned over the years is that no one camp has the full, the full embodiment of truth. And no one um, theological angle, whether it's, uh, um, you know, if you're into charismatic theology, Pentecostal theology, whether you're into Hebrew roots theology, all that kind of stuff, they all have a lot of truth in them, but not one of them is the fullness of the truth in its own right. Although everyone in each of those camps would think that they are right and everyone else is wrong. And so over the years, as I've learned from all these different things, I've kind of engrafted a lot of those things into myself, took the good, spit out the bad. Some things you have to hold in tension, some things you hold in balance, and through that you get a a good um, theological 
breadth of, of Christianity. And then, of course, to add to the mix, we also have another diversity is where we have a lot of Messianic Jews. These are Jews that believe in Jesus as their Messiah. And so these, these people are very much trying to outwork their lives in their identity as Jews uh, from the Mosaic Covenant and with the revelation of Jesus, their Messiah. So, so in Christianity, you've got a real wide mix of people, everyone from replacement. Replacement Christians are people who believe that the church has replaced Israel, and Israel is no longer relevant anymore. The fact that Israel is a state is purely uh, con- inconsequential and it's just a coincidence and a great inconvenience. Um, whereas, you know, the pro Zionistic camp, which we'd probably, to be fair, we'd put pl- place ourselves in, we believe that actually there is a biblical case for Israel and stuff. And so, but even within these extremes, there is, you know, you don't, you don't believe in replacement theology for no good reason. There is, there is degrees of truth to replacement theology. But there's also degrees of extremism to pro-Zionistic theology as well. So with this course, we're going to look at what I would call biblical theology, not um, your theological bias. Okay? You can have a theological bias when it comes to Israel. In the sense, you could be anti-Israel or you could be pro-Israel. But I don't want to come at it from that angle. I want to just see what does the Bible actually say in its own merit, by its own authority. And if we as honest Bible-believing Christians, we have to come back to the root and the truth of Scripture. And irrespective of what our prejudices are, the Bible trumps our opinions. The Bible trumps our theology. The Bible trumps our denominations. The Bible trumps it all. And so... The problem is with today is that in Christianity, we have a thing called Christian modernism. Christian modernism takes uh, current thinking of the day and it critiques scripture through that lens. The problem with that is that the Bible is always the one that's, under, it's, that's being scrutinized rather than the Bible scrutinizing and the lens and the light, so to speak, being upon us. And so we have to come to scripture with a degree of humility and say, okay, Maybe I'm wrong on some points. What does the Bible actually teach about a lot of this kind of stuff? Um, yeah. Uh, I think I did. Yes, I did. Yes, I did press the button. Thank you. Yeah, so I, I, I'm recording it. I was like, oh, I don't remember. Okay. So I, wanna, I know I'm going to get a bit technical today as well, but just bear with me and we'll break it all down. Um, but... What was I going to say? There, there, is a, there is a problem with Christianity today. And that part of that problem is the lens in which it looks at Scripture. So, for example, the way that the church thinks now is the Old Testament is finished. It's done away with. Okay, It's only New Testament only. It's no longer about the state of Israel. It's only about the kingdom of God and the church. So, with that mindset, everything's about church and everything's about kingdom. And when you have that mindset, Israel cannot fit into that picture. But of course you have a problem. Is it says, I think it's in Matthew 5, where Jesus says, I've not come to do away with the law and the prophets, but I've come to fulfill them. But most Christians go, oh yes, he, he, he fulfilled it, therefore he replaced it. No, that's not what he said. He said, I'm not come to do away with it. I've come to fulfill it. And they're like, yes, yeah, so therefore he, he ended it. No, that's not what it says. It says it will not be done away with but I've come to fulfill it. So if the Torah is still running, okay, and this is where Christians get their knickers in a twist on this, what happens for Christians is in Romans 6 and 7, Paul teaches that 
baptism is essential uh, for you to die with Christ and then come up as a new creation out of that water. So it's like going into the grave with Christ, but you come out of the grave as a new creation, okay? Just as Jesus did. And then Romans 7 teaches us in the first six verses, he's, he, Paul gives this analogy. He said, look, there's this married woman and she, uh, she, you know, she can't marry another man until the first husband has died. Because if she chooses to marry another man while still with the other guy, she will commit adultery. And then he uses that as an analogy for the new and the old covenant. He says, therefore, because you have died with Christ, the law has no longer power and authority over you. Therefore, because you've died with Christ, you come out from the control of the law and you come into a new covenant, a new marriage contract, so to speak. And that's why as Christians, we come under the new covenant. But also at the same time, the Torah is still running. And Jesus said, not one dot or tittle of it will pass away until the end of the age. In other words, the law does have a time code on it. It will only last until the end of the age, but it is still running. And with that mindset, then we have to understand that if I'm in the kingdom of God, but somehow that the Torah is still running, that means God hasn't finished with Israel. And that means he still has kind of like an Old Testament uh, understanding of the nations and how he treats the nations and how he treats Israel concurrently whilst the church is operating on the earth at the same time. Do you understand? So if the Torah is still running, God's plans and purposes for Israel are still running, whilst the church, which is made up of Jew and Gentile, is running concurrently with it, alongside of it, but we are of a, a, in a new covenant and a new dispensation and in the kingdom of God. But nevertheless, those two tracks, so to speak, are still running through history. A lot of Christians don't see that. They don't get that. So they look at Israel. They say the law has been done away with. There's nothing in the Old Testament that now needs to be fulfilled. Israel is finished. The church has replaced her. That's their conclusion. That's a monorail, but that's not what scripture teaches. It's two rails running concurrently. God has a plan for Israel. God has a plan for the Jews. Will you back that up? Yes. The point of this course is that we'll just go through all of the scriptures bit by bit, pull them all apart, and you will see for yourself God's heart and God's plan for Israel. Now, so I'm going to look at some other examples here because, again, with the modern day church, they're actually guilty of varying degrees of heresy. Did you know that? Varying degrees of heresy. So there's two major heresies that were outlawed in the early church. Uh, and one of them is Gnosticism. Okay, I'm going to get, it'll get fun in a minute, but I've just got to get a bit technical with you. Like, oh my goodness me, I'll just eat my tea. All right. So you've got Gnosticism and you've got Marcionism. Now Gnosticism states that everything of the flesh is evil but everything of the spirit is good. And so with this modern day Christian mindset, they say, ah, Old Testament, all physical blessings, New Testament, all spiritual blessings, okay? Therefore, the New Testament is good, Old Testament is bad. Then we have Marcionism. Now, Marcionism is based on this guy called Marcia, Marcion, and he basically didn't like the God of the Old Testament, didn't like Jews much either. This is like around about AD 200 and something, I think. And he didn't like... Uh, the Old Testament, and he only liked the God of the New Testament, and even then he didn't like some of the books in the New Testament because of God seemed a little bit grumpy on certain occasions. So he then basically said, Old Testament bad, New Testament good. The modern day church says, ah yes, all that Old Testament stuff, that's physical blessings, but now we're in the New Covenant, it's all spiritual blessings, Gnosticism. And now a lot of Christians go, oh, you know, don't tell me that because that's just old, old covenant. That's all Old Testament. Not interested in that. 
Marcionism. They're two types of heresy which were outlawed in the early church but seem to be alive and well today in, in our mainstream Christianity. And because of that, and I think, where is my Bible? There's one page in the Bible which I think has caused more problems than any other page in the Bible. Does anyone know which one it is? No, it's that, it's that one that's sandwiched. Um, hopefully my one's got it unless I took, oh, here, here it is. I used to tear it out. That, that one there, look. New Testament. Okay. It's almost like, ah, this is new, new and improved and better. Therefore, the old is rubbish because it's outmoded and who wants an old thing anyway, right? Okay. That one page. Because one of the things that we need to understand when it comes to the Bible is that all scripture is God breathed. But you would think in today's church, like, oh yeah, all, all, all scripture is God breathed except the Old Testament. The fact is that the Old Testament has uh, loads of Old Testament prophetic words and prophetic prophecies, etc., that still haven't come to pass yet. I believe a third of Old Testament prophecy still hasn't been fulfilled. Okay, I said this on Sunday. So in Isaiah 66, I believe, it talks about, I think it's Isaiah 66, I'm not sure if it even goes that far, but in around about Isaiah chapter 6 somewhere, it talks about the new heaven and the new earth. It's a prophecy referring to the new heaven and the new earth, which is written about in the book of Revelation. Okay, the Old Testament has a lot to say about things about our time and things in the times yet to come. Therefore, the Old Testament, maybe certain elements of it to us are maybe closed, but nevertheless, the Old Testament is still a living book. And until the church realizes that, well, we're going to have a bit of a problem. So I want to talk a bit for a few minutes about what I call bridging the gap. Now, to understand the New Testament, you have to understand the Old Okay, when I first went to Bible college, I, thought I had a choice, New Testament theology or Old Testament theology. And I thought, well, if I'm going to understand the new, I need to get to grips with the old, right? So I studied Old Testament theology and it was the best thing I could have ever done because it opened the Bible to me in a way that you don't understand if you're just a New Testament only reading Christian. So let me give you an example. In Revelation chapter 12, verses 1 to 2, okay, there's this, this verse here and it says this. And a great sign appeared in heaven, a woman clothed with the sun, with the moon under her feet, and on her head was a crown of 12 stars. She was pregnant and was crying out in birth pains and the agony of giving birth. Now, if you're a New Testament only Christian that only reads the New Testament because the old is done away with, you would read that and go, what on earth is that about? Some just really weird, far out symbolism. The book of Revelation is meaningless. It's just like, what is it going on about? Everything's symbolic and all this kind of stuff. But you see, the Bible operates in the principle of first mention. If you see something that you don't understand, try and find where it first appeared in the Bible to find the answer to the question you don't know. So to answer this question, you need to go right back to the beginning of your Old Testament to Genesis 37. Now, this is when Joseph had a dream. And it says, then he, Joseph, dreamed another dream and told it to his brothers and said, behold, I've dreamed another dream. Behold, the sun, the moon, and 11 stars were bowing down to me. But when he told it to his father and his brothers, his father rebuked him and said to him, what is this dream that you've dreamed? Shall I and your mother and your brothers indeed come to bow ourselves to the ground before you? So that scripture in Revelation is now decoded by the Old Testament because the Old Testament has given us the key. It's talking about Israel and the 12 tribes. You might go, well, the one in the Old Testament only had 11 stars, the one in the New Testament has 12. Well, that's because 11 of them are bowing down to one of the 12 stars, which is Joseph. All right? It's all, it's all pretty easy, really. 
that's a good example of the Old Testament giving light to the New Testament. But then we have it the other way around as well, is that the New Testament sheds light on the Old Testament. But again, if you're not really going to read or spend much time in the Old Testament, how would you know, right? So in Revelation 4, 5, it says this, Out from the throne came flashes of lightning and sounds and peals of thunder, and there were seven lamps of fire burning before the throne of God, which are the seven spirits of God. Now in this text here, we have seven uh, lamps which represent the seven spirits of God. Okay, Revelation 1.4 says, John to the seven churches that are in Asia, grace to you and peace from him who is and who was and who is to come, from the seven spirits who are before his throne. Then verse 12, then I turned to see the voice that was speaking with me and having turned I saw seven golden lampstands. Revelation 1.20, as for the mystery of the seven stars which you saw in my right hand and the seven golden lampstand, the seven stars are the angels of the seven churches and the seven lampstands are the seven churches. All right, so you, so what? That sounds good. All right, we go back into our Old Testament to the book of Numbers, all right, verse one, uh, one to three. Now the Lord spoke to Moses saying, speak to Aaron and say to him, when you set up the lamps, the seven lamps, shall give light in front of the lampstand. And Aaron did so. He set up his lamps in front of the lampstand as the Lord commanded Moses. What's all this going on about? There is a menorah in heaven which represents the seven churches. And there in the Old Testament, in the, in the, in the days of Aaron and Moses when they built the tabernacle, is a Jewish menorah which represents the sevenfold spirit of God and the seven angels of the seven churches. So the seven churches and the gospel was being revealed right in the tabernacle of Moses, but you won't know that unless you know your Old Testament, and you won't know that unless you know your New Testament. And so you can see how the two testaments complement each other by translating and interpreting each other. If you're just a New Testament-only Christian, as I'm talking about the book part of it, and you're not focusing on the Old Testament, you are missing so, so much. And if you're, especially if you're a bit too Hebrew rootsy, because there's extremes of that where you're all in the Old Testament, you're missing out on the revelation that the new is revealing that, that is shown in the Old Testament as well. All right, so you're all with me? Okay, good. All right, let's get down to some details then. So we're going to now look at the Abrahamic covenant. Now, there are several key covenants in the Bible, and these covenants, it's like a tapestry. They weave together throughout all the scriptures, and they hold it all together. One covenant does not necessarily cancel out another covenant. Indeed, what happens is that these covenants are built upon another, upon another, upon another, so to speak, okay? Um, and so there are several covenants in your Bible. You have the Adamic covenant. You have the Noahic covenant. You have the Abrahamic covenant. You have the uh, Davidic covenant. You have the Messianic covenant, which is through, through Christ. There's probably a, a couple of others that I've, I've forgotten to mention. But I'm going to give you, bore you now with some, some key words here, okay, from the Hebrew language. So the first Hebrew word, as translated as covenant, is the Hebrew word berit. And berit means to cut. So when a covenant is made, it's about the cutting of something and, and the shedding of blood. So, for example, in the Abrahamic covenant, they had to cut their, circuit, uh, cut their foreskin as a sign of cutting covenant with, with God, etc., and so on and so forth. Jesus, when his back was whipped, God was literally cutting covenant with us there through his flesh. And God was making a berit with us through his whipped and flailed flesh, okay? Because it literally means a tearing and a cutting. So that's the first word. The next word 
um, is chesed, or some people announce it as chesed, but it's chesed, C-H-E-S-E-D. And this is God's covenantal favour and blessings to his people. But you cannot have that unless you're in covenant relationship with God. Okay? You cannot have the benefits of God's grace and relationship if you are not in covenant with God. Okay? You might disagree with that, but that's what the Bible teaches. Now, if you want to get really theological about it, there is what we call background grace or generic grace, which everybody has access to in the sense of the sun shines on the righteous and on the unrighteous alike. You know, the crops grow for the unrighteous and the righteous alike. But the special dispensation of God's favour and God's blessings are only upon those who are in covenant with him. Okay. Then the third word, the key word is shalom. Uh, which denotes fullness of life, peace, joy, health, vitality, and prosperity. Who wouldn't want to have some uh, shalom, eh? Um, And so to have access to God's chesed, his covenantal favor and blessings, and his shalom, his peace, and his prosperity, you have to be in berits. You have to be in covenant, cut covenant with God, which is what happened through Christ. In the New Testament, these three words are still used, but obviously in the Greek. So for the word for covenant in the New Testament is diatheke, the word for grace is charis. That's where the word charismata comes from, which is charismatic, means gifts of grace. And the word for peace is irene. Yeah? Okay. So, actually, there are six covenants. I only mentioned five of them a minute ago. So you've got the Adamic, the Noahic, the Abrahamic, the Mosaic, the Davidic. The Messianic. That's, that's five, isn't it? Did I? Oh, that'll be it. How could I miss that one? Yeah, yeah, so the Mosaic one as well. Um, So to really get to grips now, we're going to have to spend some time looking at the Abrahamic covenant because this is really where we have to spend some of our time because this is foundational. I'm going to focus on this course from the Old Testament on two covenants, the um, Abrahamic and the Davidic. Why? Because these are the covenants that are mentioned in the Gospels when, you know, we have the Christmas story and the angels appeared, etc. So that you will see that Even in Israel's time, God hadn't forsaken them. God hadn't changed his mind. The covenant hadn't changed. And even then, when we get to the book of Acts and we get to Galatians, we'll still be looking at all these covenants and you'll see how nothing has changed. Okay? All right. So the first thing you need to know about Abraham is that he was a Gentile. People think that he's Jewish. Well, how can he be Jewish? Because the Jews came from, the, from out of Abraham. Abraham was firstly a Gentile, okay? And then through his walk with God, he became uh, circumcised. And then through him, then came the 12 tribes, you know, and Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and the 12 tribes, etc. okay? So that's really where the Jewish nation came from. So that's why he's known as the father of faith to the Gentiles and the father of those who, through faith, because of circumcision, etc., is also then the father of the Jews, Okay? That's why we can, I don't know, maybe you don't want to know this, but that's why we can be justified by faith like Abraham was as a Gentile. And that's why then the Jews can also be justified by faith in God through their covenant as well. Uh, we can, we'll spend more time on that a bit later. All right, all with me so far. So it says in Joshua 24, 2, And Joshua said unto all the people, Thus says the Lord God of Israel, Your fathers dwelt on the other side of the flood in old time, even Terah, the father of Abraham and the father of Nahor, and they served other gods. So they were pagans. Okay? So Abraham's dad, possibly even Abraham as well, they were pagans. They lightly worshipped the moon god. They were pagans. They weren't Jewish. They were Gentiles. All right? Pagan as they come. Um, Now, Abraham's call 
to follow the one true God came in Genesis 12. Now, we're going to get down to some important scriptures now. These will all be covered in your course notes. And these are, these are, these are verses you really want to think about and underline in your Bible. The first one's in Genesis 12, verses 1 to 3. Now, the Lord said to Abram, Go forth from your country and from your relatives and from your father's house to the land. Underline that word. To the land, which I will show you, and I will make you a great nation. Okay? Land, nation. And I will bless you, and I will make your name great, and you shall be a blessing, and I will bless those who bless you, and the one who curses you I will curse, and in you all the families of the earth will be blessed. Now, there's loads of stuff we could, we could spend a lot of time in there, but we're not going to. Um, but basically, this is God speaking to Abraham. He's told to go to a specific land and is told that he will be made into a nation, a people group in his own right. All right, all with me so far? Okay. So here we encounter the principle of first mention. This is something that's just now from here on just going to keep on being reiterated, reiterated, reiterated. We get to verse 7 now in Genesis 12. And it says, the Lord appeared to Abraham. Okay, so he physically appeared to him and said, to your descendants, I will give this land. All right, I will give it to your descendants. All right, so he built an altar there to the Lord who had appeared to him. Again, we can hear God. Now, when God speaks, right, he's not a man. God doesn't lie. God is not a man that he should change his mind. He's, God is unchanging. He is, um, what's the theological word? Immutable, thank you. He is immutable. God's not like you or me. Doesn't wake up one day in a bad mood because he had too much, I don't know, too much communion wine the day before or something. He's not like that. He's consistent. He is forever the same. Okay? God is always the same. And he doesn't change his mind. This is why God is known in the Old Testament as the rock of our salvation. Because rocks, guess what? When they get rained on and hailed on, they don't change. You know, you look at a mountain today, it probably looks exactly the same as it did a couple of thousands years ago because they don't change. God is the rock and he changes not. Okay? Why am I ramming this home? Because these things that God is saying to Abraham and to Israel are important. Because if you think, brothers and sisters, and I say this to people watching, if you think that God is a covenant breaker, then you better watch out. You see, Gentiles are quick to say, oh, God forgot the Jews because they were hard-hearted and they were rebellious towards him, so he's not interested in them anymore. Well, let's just take that same model and apply it to the Gentiles. There are more hard-hearted, God-hating Gentiles in the world right now than has ever been. So by that same principle of logic that you've applied to Israel, apply it to yourselves. Is God going to forsake you? Or Gentiles are like, oh no, he wouldn't ever do that. But Paul warns in Romans saying, hey, if he can do it to them, he can do it to you. If those branches were cutting off so you could come on, he can quickly cut you off as well. Gentiles need to be very careful with their arrogance when it comes to this sort of stuff. You are grafted into Israel. You don't replace Israel. Anyway, we'll cover all that later uh, through the course. So here's another scripture now in um, Revelation, not, sorry, Genesis 13, verses 14 to 15. The Lord said to Abraham, after Lot was separated from him, from him. Now lift up your eyes and look from the place where you are, northward, southward, and eastward and westward. For all the land which you see, here we go, listen, I will give it to you and your descendants for a short period of time. Is that what it says? For a very long period of time. No, it says forever. 
But of course the Gentile go, oh, you know, of course it's just using parlance. It doesn't really mean forever. No, God means what he says. God is as true as his word. Okay, God doesn't change his mind. If God's word can't be trusted, then God can't be trusted. It's as simple as that. Okay, when God says these will belong to your descendants forever, that's what it means. And we'll look at later whether did God really break the covenant with Israel and did they break it against him. We'll cover all that as well later on because no doubt some people may, think, may be thinking that. So many from a replacement background, people who believe that the church has replaced Israel, would state that Israel broke the covenant with God and so God moved away from, the, from Israel to the Gentiles. Therefore, that promise is no longer valid. Okay, But we will cover all that uh, later on. But as I said before, if Israel broke covenant with God under the Mosaic administration, then all manner of terrible things would befall them, even expulsion from the land. So even when Israel did break covenant with God, God had made it clear in the Mosaic covenant, hey guys, if you are naughty, I will give you degrees of judgment. And the, the highest degree of judgment is I'll bring a nation against you and you'll be kicked out of the land. The land will spew you out and you'll be sent to the nations. Okay, That, that was part of the deal. But never at any stage did God say, yeah, I'm done with you guys. Okay? They came into a covenant relationship with God and God has promised because he is faithful to his promises to Abraham that these things will be seen through. So the New Testament scriptures show us that the Abrahamic covenant is still up and running. Um, have I got these here? Let's have a quick look at them, shall we? So you'll find this in Galatians chapter 3. Now, I appreciate, you know, some of you might be like, oh man, this is a bit heavy. But this, this is, if you were to go to Bible college, this is what you'd learn. You gotta, this, is, this, is, this is real nuts and bolts stuff. This stuff is really essential. And, and it's just not taught from the pulpit. People are, forgive me for saying this, but, but Christian, Christian teaching today is so, I don't know, if it was like juice, you know, and you've got to die, you know, water down that concentrate. It would be just like tasteless. It's like, man, it doesn't even taste of orange. Give me some, put some more concentrate in there, will you? Okay, the church needs to up their ante when it comes to teaching because people, have just, people are just not getting this stuff, and they should do. Um, so where are we? Uh, thank you. So Galatians 3, verses 13 to 14. And it says, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the Torah, having become a curse for us. What is the curse of the Torah? Is it the Torah? No, it's the curse of the Torah, which is Deuteronomy 28, verses 16 to 60 to 68, I believe. And it's pretty nasty stuff in there. Um, so Christ redeemed us from the curse of the Torah. This is why Paul says in, in Romans 8, chapter 1, there is therefore now no condemnation for those in Christ Jesus. So the Torah has no power to condemn you, which is what it said in Romans 7, because you've died with Christ. And when you're dead, the law can't condemn you anymore because you're now alive in Christ as a new creation. Therefore, there's no condemnation for those in Christ Jesus because Christ redeemed you from the curse of the law, having become a curse for us, for it is written, cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. In order... That in Christ Jesus, the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles so that we would receive the promise of the Spirit through faith. So Paul is making this case here that the Abrahamic covenant is very much still up and running. And therefore, the, blessings of the, Abraham, the blessing of the Abrahamic covenant was as much for Israel to be a nation and to have the land as it was for Gentiles to come in as well. Okay? Now, you cannot say, ah, 
God's finished with the Jews, but he's still good with the, with the Gentiles because God is a covenant breaker because he swore in the Abrahamic covenant that it would be a covenant for both Jews and Gentiles. Jews to be a nation and to have a physical landmass. Gentiles, that they, the nations, would, be, would come into this relationship and a joy with God as well. Okay? If you cut off Israel, you have to cut yourself off. Okay? Don't think that you have a special dispensation over Jews because it's actually the other way around. Um, or some would say. All right, so where's my other scripture? Uh, and verse 29, it says, If you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's descendants, heirs according to promise. So if you're in Christ, you are Abraham's descendants. You are part of that Abrahamic covenant, okay? So the Apostle Paul makes it very clear in Genesis 3, Galatians 3.17. What I'm saying is this. The Torah which came 430 years later, does not, does not, does not invalidate a covenant previously ratified by God so as to nullify the promise. In other words, the Abrahamic covenant has not been superseded. It has not been done away with. It has not been cancelled by other, some other covenant. It is still running and will run to the end of the age. Okay? Everyone, all right? At the end, you can ask me questions and stuff as well. So if you've got any questions, just write them down. Okay. So uh, another assumption about the new covenant is that it does away with uh, and replaces Israel. So how many, how many of you have heard that saying, oh, the new covenant is all, all about the church now? Yeah, it's all about the Christians, all about the church. Yeah, that's right, the new Israel. Yeah, all that kind of stuff. There is a truth, not a new Israel, but there is a truth, the fact that the church is kind of like a spiritual Israel. I'll, I'll, I'll go with that. But that doesn't mean we replace Israel in any way. And let's not forget, who was the new covenant initially offered to? So to find the answer to this, we go to Jeremiah 31, and the, in verses 31 to 33. And it says, Behold, days are coming, declares the Lord, when I'll make a new covenant with the Gentiles. No, that's not what it says. With the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. Okay, I'll come to that in a minute. And it will not be like the covenant which I made with their fathers in the day. I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. My covenant, which they broke. So God's acknowledging Israel broke the covenant. Okay, but he's saying here, no, but I'm going to make a new covenant with Israel. Not forget about them and replace them and do away with them. Okay. It says, nor though I was a husband to them, declares the Lord, but this is the covenant which I will make with, with the house of Israel. Okay? Nothing about the Gentiles here. After those days, declares the Lord, I will put my Torah within them and on their heart I'll write it and I will be their God and they shall be my people. So this new covenant, who is it promised to? The Jews. You and I don't have a new covenant because we never had an old one. We're just a part of the Messianic covenant. Sure, it is a new covenant from a Jewish perspective, but to us it's just a covenant because we never had an old one to start with. It's a new covenant to the Jewish people because they, they know the difference between an old covenant and a new covenant. Now, there are Christians that, that kind of mess about with this stuff, and especially in the Hebrew Roots camp. I love the Hebrew Roots guys, but sometimes they do say some peculiar things. One of the things that they try and state is, again, because of a confusion on Pauline theology, is that they say, I oh, know, all Christians must observe the Torah. And when it says a new covenant here, it doesn't mean new, it's a renewed covenant. How many people have heard that? No, I've, I've heard it quite a lot, a renewed covenant. Okay, so, how, so the way to look at this is, what does the Hebrew say? Well, the root of new is potentially renewed. Okay, all right, so let's go with that for a second. 
And let's go back to this verse. Behold, the days are coming to close the Lord will now make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. Not like the covenant. Not like the covenant which I made with their fathers in the day I took them by the hand. Okay, some people go, well, you know, it could still be renewed covenant. So, okay, let's, let's take it. Let's carry on with this argument. What does the Greek version of the Old Testament say? Because the Greek version of the Old Testament, the Septuagint, was written by 70 Jewish scholars. So they know exactly what the Hebrew is saying, right? What did they write? So we go to the Greek language, and guess what it is? It's the word new. But not just, not like a, a new as in could be renewed. It's new as in brand spanking new, never been used before, fresh out of the factory kind of new, okay? And then, okay, but even if, even let's say, well, you, you know, we could still mm, go with that. What about the Aramaic version of the Old Testament? What does the Aramaic version of the Old Testament say? New. Okay? So you have all these witnesses that completely go against the concept of a renewed covenant. It is a new covenant, shiny, brand new, out of the factory kind of new. Okay? You're with me so far? All right. So this new covenant is firstly for the Jewish people. Secondly, this prophecy from Jeremiah is addressed to the house of Israel and the house of Judah. What's that about? Well, in the days of King David, Israel was a whole nation. Then we had Solomon, that was known as the golden age of Israel. Then Solomon had a kid, and that kid grew up and he became the next king. And he had some... uh, counselors that that he had some young guys and some old guys and some people of Israel came to him and said look mate your father he he was pretty tough on us can you like you know dial it down a little bit can we just have like it a little bit easier on the whole taxes thing and on the labor force thing can you like you know just give us a bit of a break so he went away consulted the old the old advisors and they were like yeah do as they say and it will go well for you you'll be considered a good king he went to the young guys and they went no show no mercy he says to them well my father was like a little finger but I'm going to be like a giant whatever and uh, and that's you know give them the give them the give them the fist and show them at your boss and your king so he went with the younger people's opinion and 10 tribes of Israel went yeah we're not following this and they moved to the north and they became known as the northern tribes those 10 tribes became known as Israel and the tribes in the south were known as Judah primarily, and it was made up of two tribes, which was Judah and Benjamin, okay? So the guys living in the southern kingdom, which was where Jerusalem was based, most of the king, a lot of the kings in your book of kings that lived in the south were good kings. All the kings that lived in the north, because they, they couldn't get to Jerusalem and worship the one true God, got into idolatry, they were all bad kings, all right? So if you ever get, get like, man, what's the deal with these kings? Make sure you understand which, which territory that these prophets are being sent to, because the ones in the north, they were all bad. Yeah, ironically, God said some, sent some amazing prophets to the guys in the north as well. It shows God's compassion, love, and mercy, and long-suffering. Okay, the next thing to point out, uh, yeah, I've done all that about the renewed covenant. So the next question is, when did the new covenant begin? Yeah, could be Pentecost. Any, any other takers on Pentecost? Sorry? Jesus' birth, any, others, any other takers? On the cross when Jesus died? Sorry? When God writes laws in your heart. Well, let's see what, let's see what the scriptures say. Luke twenty two twenty, And after supper, Jesus took another cup of wine and said, this is the cup of the new covenant between God and his people, an agreement confirmed with my blood, which is poured out as a sacrifice for you. Now, again, this is just lost on us because we're so used to hearing this, yeah, it's the new covenant. But if you were a Jewish person waiting for the Messiah and waiting for this earnest new covenant that God had spoken about where, where God would do wonderful things with Israel and it would be this new messianic hope, 
And then we're all just sat around the dinner table having a nice cedar, you know, that they do every year. And Jesus is, you know, dishing out some bread and some wine. And then he comes out with that line. This. You know, like he did when he was in the synagogue and he said, this day, this scripture has been fulfilled. I mean, can you imagine being a disciple and hearing him say, oh, by the way, guys, this is the cup of the new covenant. Wait, what? This is it? No, no giant fanfare. This just us guys in this little room. This is where the new covenant's beginning. Hallelujah. That's where it started. And it was prophesied and it was promised firstly to the Jews and then to the Gentiles. Amen. Anyway, back to Genesis. Yeah, Genesis 13, verses 14 to 15. It says, The Lord said to Abraham, after Lot had separated from him, Now lift up your eyes and look to the place where you are, northward, southward, eastward, and westward. For all the land which you see, I'll give it to you and your descendants forever. So taking into consideration everything we've just looked at, knowing that the Abrahamic covenant is now still running. Everyone, by the way, if, you're, if you want to yawn, you can yawn, right? I appreciate something like I'm... You just make it a little more obvious, all right? Just, just get it out, all right? So, because <laughs> it's really not working. I can see you want to yawn. <laughs> just do it. I, I know it's the evening. It's dark. You've eaten. You're tired. I get it. You've been to work. So, so taking into, into consideration all that we've looked at and knowing that the Abrahamic covenant is still running and this promise in Genesis is for God's descendants, Abraham's descendants, sorry, forever. And forever means simply what it means, forever. Forever means forever, right? It's a very long time. But again, you could still say, well, this is actually still quite a simplistic argument. And that's a fair point. It's like, well, you know, it's just playing with words. So we're going to look at some more passages of scriptures and then link that to the New Testament as well. So that you, everyone going through this course will see for themselves clearly that the Abrahamic covenant really is still standing. And if it is still standing and the Gentiles are grafted in, then surely it means that God's promises to Israel must also come to pass as well. Okay. Now, in Genesis 17... Uh, again, this is talking about the Gentiles now in verse 16. Um, it says, this is God saying, I will bless her, that's Sarah, and moreover, I'll give you a son by her, which um, is um, Isaac. It says, and I will bless her and she shall become nations. Kings and peoples shall come from her. Now, the word here for nations is the Hebrew word goyim. Okay, the word goyim is where we get the word Gentile from. So from Sarah, Gentiles will come into this covenant as well. Any Gentiles in the room tonight? Okay, so you are a fulfillment of this prophecy here. Uh, and this is, it said, so goyim is really where we get the word, uh, word Gentile from, because in the Greek, I can't remember what it's in the Greek actually, I think it's, uh, yeah, I can't remember off the top of my head. But basically, uh, this is where the term Gentiles comes from. Um, and so as time moves on, the blessings of the Abrahamic covenant moves on from Abraham then on to his son Isaac, and then on to um, uh, Jacob. So I'll just read you a couple of other scriptures here again. So what, the reason why we need to keep looking at this is that God is continuing to re-ratify his covenant he made with Abraham. So in Genesis 26, verses 3 to 4, God says, Hey, travel in this land, and I will be with you, and I will bless you, um, and I will bless you. For to you and your descendants I will give all these lands. Okay, and I will establish the oath which I swore to your father Abraham. You need to understand that God swore an oath to Abraham. Okay, 
It's sworn. It's ratified. It's cut by blood. It is a covenant, okay? It can't be easily just broken and done away with. And Abraham was obedient to that covenant. So there's no reason on God's earth why that covenant should be broken or declared null and void, okay? And as, Pauline, as Paul teaches in his own theology, the Abrahamic blessing still has to be in effect because the fulfillment of the Abrahamic promise is that Israel will be a nation and will have our own land, but also the nations, the Goyim, the Gentiles, will be grafted in as well, okay? Uh, then the blessings passed on to Jacob, Genesis 28, verses 3 to 4. May God Almighty bless you and make you fruitful and multiply you, that you may become a company of peoples. May he also give you the blessing of Abraham to you and to your descendants with you, that you may possess the land of your sojournings, which God gave to Abraham. Okay, so God's just keep on reiterating that covenant there. Um, some key points to look at here um, is that this blessing of Abraham has been given to Jacob. And it says again, he and his descendants will possess the land, the land which God gave to Abraham. Okay, let's keep reiterating this. And again, we now come to Jacob and the same language is used again in Genesis, in Genesis 35, 9 to 12. Then God appeared to Jacob again when he came from Paddan Aran and he blessed him. God said to him, your name is Jacob. You shall no longer be called Jacob, but Israel shall be your name. Thus he called him Israel. God also said to him, I am God Almighty, El Shaddai. Be fruitful and multiply. A nation and a company of nations, i.e. Gentiles, shall come from you and kings shall come from you. The land which I gave to Abraham and Isaac, I will give it to you and I will give the land to your descendants after you. Again, so he's re-ratifying, you're going, to get, you're going to be a people group, a nation, you're going to have your own land, and also nations are going to somehow be going to be connected to you as well. Okay, that's the Gentiles. So Israel will become a nation and a company of nations. It excites me when I go to Israel, I go to the Jerusalem prayer breakfast, and there we see 70 nations coming together. You know, all these are all Christians, all these different nations all coming together into Israel. We all come to the Knesset where you see all these nations and all the government representatives and pastors from around the world and stuff. And they always quote that, quote these scriptures saying, you know, how the nations are being represented here and that they're standing with the people of Israel. And you're literally seeing the Abrahamic promise come to pass that Israel are a nation, they have their own land, and there in the midst of them are the nations coming to celebrate with them and stand with them. Amen? And we will see the true, a true, a true and full, fullest fulfillment of that when Jesus returns. So Galatians 3.16 says, Now the promises were spoken to Abraham and to his seed. He does not say, and to seeds, as referring to many, but rather to one and to your seed, that is Christ. Okay, just bear with me a minute while I keep coming through here, because this seed of Jacob obviously eventually is the king, which is Jesus the Messiah. Ephesians 2, verses 12 onwards, it says, In those days you were living apart from Christ, it's talking to us Gentiles, you were excluded from citizenship among the people of Israel, and you did not know the covenant promises God had made to them. You lived in this world without God and without hope, but now you have been united with Christ Jesus. Once you were far away from God, but now you have been brought near to him through the blood of Christ. 
For Christ himself has brought peace between us. He united Jews and Gentiles into one people when in his own body on the cross he broke down the wall of hostility that separated us. Now again, in the language that Paul is using, he's not saying that the Jews have been replaced any more than the Gentiles have been replaced. He's saying now that God has broken down that wall of hostility between Jews and Gentiles so that they can come together as one people and as one nation under God. Hallelujah. Uh, where are we? Again, in Genesis 35, that passage says, The land which I gave to Abraham and Isaac, I'll give it to you, and I'll give the land to your descendants after you. So basically, in conclusion to what we've looked at, this is just really looking at Genesis, you can see clearly that the Abrahamic covenant deals with just several elements. That's all it deals with. A nation would arise from Abraham, and that nation would have a land, would be given a land. That land would belong to them forever, and also, somehow, that kings and Gentiles would, cut, would be associated with the lineage of Abraham as well. Now, if you're thinking, how can Gentiles possibly be of the lineage of Abraham? Well, let's have a little think about it, shall we? Okay, you're all born again, right? I hope you know Christ as your personal saviour. Guess who Jesus is? He's Jewish, right? Born of the, of, of the line of David, of the kings of David, etc. And... Um, uh, of course, in all the Old Testament prophecies, but to, I'm trying to think, what am I saying here? So we're grafted into Israel. I had the scriptures. I've lost the scriptures now. But basically, uh, through Christ, we have been grafted into Israel. And that's why we can stand with Gentiles. So Paul talks about this in Romans. He says, hey, you're wild olives, a wild olive branch, and you've been grafted into the natural olive. Now, if you take a wild olive branch and you graft it into a natural olive tree, what kind of fruits does the wild olive branch produce? wild doesn't change in other words gentiles are to remain being gentiles and jews still produce their olives and their fruits so god wants that he doesn't want gentiles to become jewish and he certainly doesn't want jews to become gentiles he wants the glory of the nations to be uh, and what god has done in the context of those nations to be manifest in their fruitfulness of their lives so we are wild olives sure but what great wild olives we produce, amen? In Israel, they produce the natural olives, and man, what great olives they produce. That's how God wants it, you know? Because there's this, 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 this stuff in the church today, it's like, oh, we must all become Jewish. But that's not what the Bible teaches. Gentiles remain Gentiles. We'll cover this later in the sessions as well. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 7, remain as what you were when you were called. If you are circumcised, don't seek to be uncircumcised. And if you're uncircumcised, don't seek to be circumcised. In other words, if you're Jewish, stay Jewish. If you're Gentile, stay Gentile. All right? Simples. Okay, right. So any, any questions so far? Yes, Paul. Yes, Paul.